We are back. Political theory and um, other stuff. Mike and Paul at it again with the racial contract. We are at bottom of 62. The chapter or the section in this chapter is called the racial contract underwrites the modern social contract and is continually being rewritten. So that that's where we're at. This doesn't really uh, apply to the, the racial contract. But for those of you that are Patreon members, that Paul and I are doing the uh, Capital Volume 1. I am reading this uh, thing related called uh, Materialism and the Dialectical Method by uh, Maurice Cornforth. Uh, he was a, uh, a philosopher from the UK in the 50s. I bring that up because I, uh, Paul and I had uh, were having a discussion off air, and uh, I think it just ties into what Paul and I have talked about, about how we can, uh, how this is a learning process for us. And so when the uh, kid from, like, Michigan or whatever uh, was Rittenhouse. Rittenhouse. Okay, so when Rittenhouse does his whole thing, you know, Destiny does his is going on about um, personal defense or self-defense and how if you're OK with a black man protecting himself from a lynch mob, then you need to be OK with Rittenhouse protecting himself from these uh, these protesters. And uh, I don't mean to put words in your mouth, Paul. I felt like what you were saying is like, no, that's ridiculous. You have to take it within the context. And I at the time was like, no, no, you need to isolate it and look at it without the context. And while reading this uh, Maurice Cornworth, he talks about how I'm, I was totally wrong, how idealism and, and metaphysics is all about abstracting things and putting things and isolating things and how that isn't how the world works and how dialectical materialism is about understanding that everything is interconnected everything is um and that there is constant movement and to try to um abstract things is to not fully understand them and so um i just want to say that um that you uh you were absolutely right about that yeah my my genius is startling most of it no i'm just kidding (laughs) yeah yeah no it is it is um, but yeah, no, it's just, uh, I, just, we've talked about how it's a learning process and it just makes me wonder how many times throughout this podcast have I talked unknowingly from a perspective of, you know, metaphysics or idealism when at the same time saying that, uh, I'm for a materialistic, you get what I'm saying? Does that make yeah. sense? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, every time I listen to an episode, I'm just like, oh man. Things I say. Right, yeah. The things I say. Yeah, so it's so it's good that, you know, it just to remind everyone that it is a learning process and uh, and that's okay, you know. Oh, yeah, it's a learning process. And, and for me, there are things sometimes that I'm, I'm pretty confident in my knowledge and then just don't make a connection to something else I'm talking about. Yep. You know, yep. like my brain likes to compartmentalize things yep. that uh, are sometimes very connected. Yep. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, like you said, literally, that's why we are doing this. Yep, yep. So anyhow, I just want to bring that up. I thought that was... Yeah, um, no, awesome. Yep. yep. So, uh, yeah, we are um, bottom page 72. Do you mind start... Sorry, 62. Do you want to start her off for us? Yeah, yeah. All right. Um, 
Once again, uh, titled The Racial Contract Underwrites the Modern Social Contract and is Continually Being Rewritten. Radical feminists argue that the oppression of women is the oldest oppression. Racial oppression is much more recent. Whereas relations between the sexes necessarily go back to the origin of the species, an intimate and central relationship between Europe as a collective entity and non-Europe, white, and non-white races, is a phenomenon of the modern epoch. There is ongoing scholarly controversy over the existence and extent of racism in antiquity. Now begin parentheses. Racism has a complex of ideas that is, as against a developed politico-economic system, end parentheses. With some writers, such as Frank Snowden, finding a period before color prejudice in which blacks are obviously seen as equals, and others claiming that Greek and Roman bigotry against blacks was there from the beginning. But obviously, whatever the disagreement on this point, it would have to be agreed that the ideology of modern racism is far more theoretically developed than ancient or medieval prejudices and is linked, whatever one's view, idealistic or materialist, of causal priority to a system of European domination. My quick thing for the understanding of the Roman stuff, I'm no expert, is that they did not care or even really acknowledge skin color. It was whether or not you were a Roman citizen, which still sucks, but is different Mm -hmm. uh, from my understanding. Yeah, totally. Nevertheless, this divergence does imply that different accounts of the racial contract are possible. The account I favor conceives the racial contract as creating not merely racial exploitation, but race itself as a group identity. I subscribe to that, I'd say. A contemporary vocabulary, the racial contract constructs race. For other accounts, for example, more essentialist ones, racial self-identification would precede the drawing up of the racial contract. White people do not pre-exist, but are brought into existence as whites by the racial contract. Hence, the peculiar transformation of the human population that accompanies this contract. The white race is invented, and one becomes white by law. I agree with all that, and it's a huge reason why I find people like Nick Fuentes to be totally ridiculous. Because he tries to, uh, and maybe I misunderstand Nick Fuentes, or I'm confusing him, but he's all about racial segregation in like a modern, quote-unquote, non-racist way. Um, and from my understanding, he's always like, well, that's how things were and how it always was. And it's like, no, dude, that's total bullshit. That is not the natural order of human beings is to like self-segregate feel skin color. And uh, it's that concept that Mills talks about right there that I think really it's just like fun to just read some sometimes. Right. Yep. Uh, and and I also, sorry, I think it is super important to point out that like when people talk about systemic anything, a lot of times it, it's in reference to this white by law thing. While maybe this isn't uh, inherently written in today's legal code, uh, we're very not far removed from it, and where and that code stood for hundreds of years, which obviously allowed for an unbelievable amount of inequity. Mm-hmm. In this framework, then. The golden age of contract theory, 1650 to 1800, overlapped with the growth of a European capitalism whose development was stimulated by the voyages of exploration. I almost read exploitation and realized that it's kind of similar. <laughs> uh, was stimulated by the voyages of exploration that increasingly gave the contract a racial subtext. The evolution of the modern version of the contract, characterized by uh, an anti-patriarchalist enlightenment liberalism, okay, uh, with its proclamation of the equal rights, autonomy, and freedom of all men, thus took place simultaneously with the massacre, 
expropriation and subjection to hereditary slavery of men at least apparently human. This contradiction needs to be reconciled. It is reconciled through the racial contract, which essentially denies their personhood and restricts the terms of the social contract to whites. To invade and dispossess the people of an unoffending civilized country would be would violate morality and transgress the principles of international law, writes Jennings. But savages were exceptional. Being uncivilized by definition, they were outside the sanctions of both morality and law. The racial contract is thus the truth of the social contract. And I say it every, every episode, probably, and I'll, I'll continue to say it every episode, but this is what um, we're talking about, or what he's talking about when he says, this is what we're talking about when people say, oh, well, it just doesn't make sense that the, the founders could could say all men are equal and then have slaves. That just isn't uh, like consistent. And the point is, is it absolutely was consistent because or it was consistent in their minds because the slaves aren't men. When we talk about men, we are talking about white Christian males. You know, we are not talking about uh, brown people or red people or whatever. I mean, last time we did that, um, uh, we had that Benjamin Franklin Franklin quote. Remember? Uh, I mean, that's yep. a perfect. Uh, in my opinion, that's a perfect example of you know, just like the. Uh, I mean, I guess it's not a perfect example of um, them thinking of them as subhuman, but but just the whole like. It's a good. Uh, of, of them not wanting them right at the very least. right and, and uh, just um me and if not um and that that quote is an example of them thinking of them as subhuman but definitely think of them as inferior from an aesthetic point of view like that right, we don't right. want like you will bring down your existence brings down the, down the beauty enjoyment. of of yeah. humanity yep and you know i mean uh, just to continue for uh my thing it's it's okay to understand what the founding fathers did well to have a, a viewpoint that they were, uh, you know, complete, you know, that they had no admirable qualities, I think, uh, is probably an overreach. Uh, but I also think that it is very legitimate that um, people do not want to uh, have them held in such high esteem. I think enshrining or, uh, you know, just having this extreme deference for them is, I think, is understandably insulting to quite a few people. Um, you know, their historical significance, perfect. Nobody wants to take that away. Their moral relevancy for today, I think, is something that should be very much questioned. Yeah. Well, and yeah, they're not, um, they aren't deities. They aren't um, gods, you know, and and even they were aware of that. And they don't, I, I mean, at least the little bit that I've read from their, their direct writings, it did not seem like they were under the impression that we would be using the same constitution right. now, you know? And so for people to be like, oh yeah, you know, I just want someone to be, I want this judge to be uh, an originalist. They need to interpret the constitution the way the founding fathers would. It's like, wait, what? First of all, how do you know how the founding fathers would interpret something, you know, when when we are a totally different culture and society? Um, yeah. Like, how, how how can, like, the founding fathers would not have been okay with a woman being a Supreme Court uh, justice? Just, so how right. would no, they, it's... how can a woman in the 21st century, or the 20th, wait, 21st, 21st century? Yeah. 21st. Yeah. In the 21st century, how can she be in the mind 
and interpret the Constitution the way that, you know, a, a slave owner would in the uh, whatever, the 18th century. Like, that's absurd. And they yeah. wouldn't have even like yeah. wanted or they didn't want people to do that, you know. And that's that's another that uh, uh, Maurice brings up in his uh in his essay is like how uh, back to the like Rittenhouse thing it's like it needs to be about fairness if if we don't if we say that the left isn't or the right isn't allowed to do something then the left isn't allowed to do something either and it's like well if you look at the outcomes that the right wants versus the left the idea of these things being treated uh equally is or fi- quote unquote fairly is is absurd you know yeah and that's my argument kind of against people who, but I personally uh, have no problem if Biden is elected with the Democrats stacking the mm-hmm. votes. Um, and I understand that the, I'm probably missing a lot of the counter arguments, but the main counter argument I've seen uh, presented when I give that idea is the sanctity of the court. Uh, and I am much more concerned with the sanctity of women's rights uh, and the rights of uh, the LGBTQ uh, tea community to uh, live the lives that they would like to live and enjoy their happiness. Um, I'm much more concerned with that than I am with the sanctity of the Supreme Court. Um, so if we have to blow up the Supreme Court to keep those, fuck yeah. Fuck yeah. I'd much rather have those rights in, in the society I live in um, than a, uh, a sanctimon or that's not the word, than a, uh, you know, untouched Supreme Court. Or yeah, whatever. totally. Totally. All right. There is some direct evidence that it is in the writings of the classic contract theorists themselves. That is, it is not it is not merely a matter of hypothetical intellectual reconstruction on my part, arguing from the from silence that men in quotes must really have meant white men already. Hugo, what is that? Grotius or Grotius? Grotius. Uh, whose early 17th century work on the natural law provided the crucial theoretical background for the later contractarians gives, as uh, Robert Williams has pointed out, the ominous judgment that for barbarians, wild beasts rather than men, one may rightly say that the most just war is against savage beasts, the next against men who are like beasts. But let us uh, just focus on the four most important contract theorists, Hobbes, Locke, Rousseau, and Kant. Consider, to begin with, Hobbes' notoriously bestial state of nature, a state of war where life is nasty, brutish, and short. On a superficial reading, it might seem that it is non-racial equally applicable to everybody, but note what he says with considering the objection that there was never such a time nor nor condition of war as this i don't know what that word it, yeah do you think that's just a i typo? don't know i i don't know the question is is it it's a word that's w-a-r-r-e i don't know man the literal only thing i can find is oh i guess worse worse okay nor I don't know, man. It says worse. They say the world is much war than it won't. Okay. Okay. That's weird. Okay. He replies, uh, where am I? Okay. I believe it was never generally so over all the world, but there are many places where they live so now. He explains 
being the savage people in many places of America. So a non-white people, indeed, the very non-white people upon whose land his fellow Europeans were encroaching, is uh, his only real-life example of people in a state of nature. And in fact, it has been pointed out that the phrasing and terminology of Hobbes' characterization may well have been derived directly from the writings of contemporaries about settlement in the Americas. The explorer Walter Raleigh uh, describes a civil war as a state of war which is the mere state of nature of men out of community, where all have an equal right to all things. And two other authors of the time characterized the in inhabitants of the Americas as people who lived like wild beasts without religion nor government nor town nor houses without cultivating the land nor clothing their bodies and people living yet as the first men without letters without laws without kings without commonwealths without arts not civil uh by nature um i just want to like, um, I don't know what area he's talking about, but if I'm thinking about like, um, like the New England area, I don't believe that people were walking around naked most of the time. Like yeah, the either. temperatures <laughs> there do not, do not allow for such things. Yeah. And I feel like the only, um, thing he was maybe right about was without letters. Yeah. Like I feel like most of the, uh, history I've read, each tribe certainly had a set of laws. And leaders. Maybe, and leaders, uh, and wealth, and yeah. art. Yeah. The bike. So, yeah, just assholes all around. Not not the natives, but people who were just like, well, I am going to not learn anything about this and be a total dickhead. In the next paragraph, Hobbes goes on to argue that though there had never been any time wherein particular men were in a condition of what it, it's got to just be war okay it's gotta be of war, of war like uh one against another there is in all times a state of continual jealousies between kings and persons of sovereign authority he presumably he presumably emphasizes this con contention or yep contention yeah. In order for the reader to imagine uh, what would happen in the absence of a common power to fear. But the, uh, the text is confusing. How could it simultaneously be the case that there had never been any such literal state of nature war when in the previous paragraph he had just said that some were living in like uh, were living like that now? As a result of the ambiguity, Hobbes has been characterized as a literal contractarian by some commenter, commentators and as a hypothetical contractarian by others. But I think this minor mystery can be cleared up once we recognize that there is a tacit racial logic in the text. The literal state of nature is reserved for non-whites. For whites, the state of nature is hypothetical. The conflict, the conflict between whites is, con is the conflict between those with sovereigns. Um, that is, those who are already and have always been in society. From this conflict, one can uh, extrapolate gesturing at the racial abyss 
so to speak, to what might happen in the absence of ruling sovereign, of a ruling sovereign. But really, we know that whites are too, too rational to allow this to happen to them. So the most notorious state of nature in the contractarian literature, the bestial war of all against all, is really a non-white figure, a racial subject lesson for uh, more uh, rational whites, uh, the, whose superior grasp of natural law herein is prud- uh, prudential, or what is that? <laughs> yeah. Okay, what does that mean again? Like prudent, oh, yeah. like yeah. like um like the uh, Puritans, um yeah. okay. Here in it, it here in its prudential rather than altruistic version will enable them to take the necessary steps to avoid it and not to behave as savages. Uh, real quick, I sorry. My only thing, I wonder. So something I've noticed also, sorry, most of my life exists in arguing with people online. Uh, not arguing, but in discussions I've had makes some people so angry to bring up European culture prior to its dominance. And I wonder how much of that is reflected in just that uncomfortability of having to acknowledge that there was a time when white people weren't, were more of the savage uh, than the uh, existing cultures. Like, um, you know, just medieval Europe in compared to, you know, Islamic cultures, I, the Middle East, yeah, yeah. I Baghdad um, or, you know, places in China during that time, the difference in, the difference in, uh, you know, culture and society was, was shocking or, or stark, if you will. Just the, the differences in wealth, differences in scientific and mathematical understanding, things of that nature. They were just really, really far apart from one another. The, the Renaissance wouldn't have happened right. without the Moors and the Jews yep. helping the fucking uh, monks, like teaching the monks how to translate Arabic and whatever um, so that they could have the classics back. Yep. You know, yep. like if if the if the Moors had been like, dude, or and the Jews had been like, we're not talking to you. Get the <laughs> hell out of here. Who knows uh, how long it would take in Europe to to get on track? Yeah. And maybe they wouldn't well, have. Yeah, you know? it's a real possibility. Um, Sorry, I just and, and and when I say get on track, that implies that there's uh, that I'm moralizing. That I'm saying that the Europe the Europe of the Renaissance was superior to the Europe of the Middle Ages and I'm not I didn't mean it like that necessarily. But it's how they view it. Right. right? Yeah. In they the narrative view it as, there's no question right. that that is a step forward. Uh, right. Yep. All right. So um Hobbes has standardly been seen as an awkwardly transitional writer, caught between feudal uh, absolutism and the rise of parla- parliamentarianism who uses the contract now classically associated with the emergence of liberalism to defend absolutism. But it might be argued that he is transitional in another way, in that in mid-17th century Britain, the imperial project was not yet so fully developed that the intellectual apparatus of racial subordination had been completely elaborated. Hobbes remains enough of a racial egalitarian that while uh, singing, singly, what is that? Singling. Singling? Yeah. Singling, singling out Native Americans for his real life example, uh, he suggests that without a sovereign, even Europeans could descend to their state uh, and that the absolutist government appropriate for non-whites 
could also be appropriate for whites. The uproar that greeted his work can be seen as attributed, at least in part, to this moral-slash-political suggestion. The spread of colonialism would consolidate an intellectual world in which this bestial state of nature would be reserved for non-white savages to be despotically governed, while civil Europeans would enjoy the benefit of liberal parliamentarianism. The racial contract began to write the social contract. Uh, One can see this transition more clearly by the time of Locke, whose state of nature is normatively regulated by transitional, altruistic, non-prudential natural law. It is a moralized state of nature in which private property and money exist. Indeed, a state of nature that is virtually civil. Whites can thus be literally in this state of nature for a brief period anyway, without its calling into question their innate qualities. Locke famously argues that God gave the world to use of the industrious and rational, which qualities were indicated by labor. So while industrious and rational Englishmen were toiling away at home, in America, by contrast, one found wild, in in quotes, wild woods and uncultivated waste. God, that's left to nature. That's such a sad way. And I know that it was a long thing and a big thing, but it's such a sad way to think of nature. You know, it's just like a a waste uh, by the idle Indians. Though they they shared the state of nature for a time with non-whites then, their residence is necessarily briefer, since whites, by appropriating and adding value to this natural world, exhibit their superior superior rationality. So the mode of appropriation of uh, Native Americans is no real mode of appropriation at all, yielding property rights that can be readily overridden or overridden if they exist at all, and thereby uh, rendering their territories normatively open for seizure once those who have long since left the state of nature Europeans encounter them. Locke's thesis was in fact to be the central pillar of the expropriation contract, the principal philosophical delineation of normative arguments supporting white civilization civilization's conquest of America, writes Williams. And not merely in the United States, but later in the other white settler states in Africa and the Pacific. Aboriginal economies did not improve the land and thus could be regarded as non-existent. And um, that is like, um, you still hear that shit from um, um, like uh, ANCAPs or like libertarians where they'll say, well, if someone's not using the land, then, um, you know, um, their claim to it is forfeit. Yeah. And it's just like, dude, um, <laughs> what the fuck? It's just so absurd to think that all land needs to be used for economic purposes right. uh, for humanity. Yeah. You know, no, it's it will literally be our downfall. Like, yeah. <laughs> Seriously. So good job, guys. The practice, and arguably also the theory of Locke, played a role in the slavery contract also. In the second treatise, Locke defends slavery resulting from a just war. For example, a defensive war against aggression. This would hardly be an accurate characterization 
of European raiding parties seeking African slaves. And in any case, in the same chapter, Locke explicitly opposes hereditary slavery and the enslavement of wives and children. Yet Locke had investments in the slave-trading Royal Africa Company and earlier assisted in writing the Slave Constitution of Carolina. Uh, so one could argue that the racial contract manifests itself here in an astonishing inconsistency. And see, right there, that's a huge important part for materialism. Like, to understand that this dude was writing about things that he also had monetary investments in, I think is unbelievably crucial to understanding where some of his opinions could be. So one could argue that the racial contract manifests itself here in an astonishing inconsistency, which could be resolved by the supposition that Locke saw blacks as not fully human and thus is subject to a different set of normative rules. Or perhaps the same Lockean moral logic that covered Native Americans can be extended to blacks also. They weren't appropriating their home continent of Africa. They're not rational. They can be enslaved. That's so fucked up. You know, I mean, just truly still existent in rhetoric today. Maybe not in regards to slavery, uh, but in regards to economic conditions, in regards to uh, incarceration rates. Um, it's always like, well, we can't help them. You know, like it, like there's some innate quality that the color of your skin could have uh, on your ability to follow a legal system uh, or, uh, you know, accumulate wealth. And they say it while also being like, well, it's not racist. It's just logic reality and it's like oh my god go fuck yourself which is why we read these books so that we can have a, a better actual understanding of how we die. Rousseau's writings might seem to be something of an exception after all it is with his work that the notion of the noble savage is associated through the phrase though the phrase is not actually his own and in the discourse on inequality's reconstruction of the origins of society everybody is envisaged envisaged uh, as having been in the state of nature, and thus to have been savage at one time or another. But a careful reading of the text reveals, once again, crucial racial distinctions. The only natural savages cited are non-white savages, examples of European savages being restricted to reports of feral children raised by wolves and bears, child-rearing practices, we are told, comparable to those of Hottentots and Caribs. Uh, no idea what those are, but I'm assuming... Mm -mm. Um, Cultures. Not good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't think you want to be a hot and tot. Um, no, Europe or you don't want to be called one, right? At least, right? Yeah, no. that's <laughs> Europeans are so intrinsically civilized that it takes upbringing by animals to turn them into savages. For Europe, savagery is in the dim, distant past, since metallurgy and agriculture are the inventions leading to civilization, and it turns out that one of the best reasons why Europe, if not the earliest to be civilized, has been at least more continuously and better civilized than other parts of the world, is perhaps that it is at once the richest in iron and the most fertile in wheat. But Rousseau was writing more than 200 years after the European encounter with the great Aztec and Inca empires. Wasn't there at least a little metallurgy and agriculture in evidence there? Apparently not. Begin quote, both metallurgy and agriculture were unknown to the savages of America, who have always, therefore, remained savages, end quote. So even what might initially seem to be a more open environmental, uh, environmental determinism, which would open the door to racial egalitarianism rather than racial hierarchy, degenerates into a massive historical amnesia and factual misrepresentation driven by the presuppositions of the racial contract. Man, did that fuck shit up. 
I wonder if um if Rousseau was aware of um the Aztecs and the Incas uh, metallurgy or if he um and and uh, intentionally lied about it or if he just wasn't aware because um the people that had been there didn't want to talk about it because that would have to admit that they um that these people were capable right. of stuff and just the fact that knowledge is way harder to come by way harder right. to come by yeah like yep. um yep. yeah i mean he couldn't like while writing this i need google just right. to make sure uh and uh, yeah uh which is a great question but uh, regardless it did perpetuate the racial right. Uh, right. contract. And, yeah, and you know, I mean, the reason I think it's such a good question, or why it's hitting me, is that it's just like, man, that would, we were to know he had that knowledge, it would put such a different tint on everything he ever wrote, you know? Yes. Like, if, yep. you know, at any point, I think if you are trying to write something on the scale uh, as the contractarians, if you are intentionally ignoring evidence, I think it um, puts a much different um, spin on what Mm-hmm. Yep. Kind yep. of a, a Peter, a Jordan Peterson esque, right? If you will. Yep. Yeah. Totally. Uh, so, uh, moreover, to the obvious point, even if some of Rousseau's non-white savages are noble, physically and psychologically healthier than the Europeans of the degraded and corrupt society produced by the real-life bogus contract, they are still savages. So they are primitive beings who are not actually part of civil society, barely raised above animals without language. Uh, which, uh, God, I'm interrupting a lot today, but uh, which is something I have not thought enough about, I don't think, which is like how negative it was for society uh, for unbelievably uh, unfit white people to feel superior um, to intelligent, uh, fit, non-white people. You know, how much was lost because we talk about that a lot, but just because somebody was like, well, what would you know? you're not white. The The concept that whiteness implies inherent self-value um, probably, obviously was unbelievably damaging um, to the other races, but probably wasn't super healthy for white people who thought that they didn't have any self-improvement necessary due to the color of their skin. Um, mm. And I think uh, possibly could have some part in explaining maybe the intellectual divide of the Bible Belt mm. and other places just even this country um, yeah it's like why do i have to learn more i'm a, a white christian <laughs> like i already know right I I need to know. so they are primitive beings who are not actually part of civil society barely raised above animals without language leaving the state of nature as rousseau argues in the social contract his later account of an ideal polity is necessary for us to become fully human moral agents beings capable of justice so the praise for non-white savages is a limited paternalistic praise, tantamount to admiration for healthy animals, in no way to be taken to imply their equality, let alone superiority to the civilized Europeans of the ideal polity. The underlying racial dichotomization and hierarchy of civilized and savage remains quite clear. Finally, Kant's version of the social contract is, in a sense, the best illustration of the grip of the racial contract on Europeans, since by this time, the actual contract and the historical dimension of contractarianism had apparently vanished altogether. So here, if anywhere, one would think, in this world of abstract persons, demarcated as such only by their rationality, race would have become irrelevant. 
But as Emmanuel Ease has recently demonstrated in great details, this orthodox picture is radically misleading, and the nature of Kantian persons and the Kantian contract must really be rethought. For it turns out that Kant, widely regarded as the most important moral theorist of the modern period, in a sense the father of modern moral theory, and, through the work of John Rawls and Jürgen Habermas, Habermas uh, increasingly central to political philosophy as well, is also the father of the modern concept of race. Interesting. Uh, his 1775 essay, The Different Races of Mankind, in quotes, uh, let's bust out some of this German. Uh, Hell yeah, von, I love this. <laughs> von den verschiedenen Rassen der Menschen, um, from the, uh, man, I don't know what, oh, obviously, uh, verschiedenen is different, and then Rassen is races. Uh, it's an exact translation, so. From oh, wow. the different races, uh, except it's of the different races in mankind, um, is a classic pro-hereditarian, anti-environmentalist statement of the immutability and permanence of race. For him, comments George Moss, racial makeup becomes an unchanging substance and the foundation of all physical appearance and human development, including intelligence. The famous theorist of personhood is also the theorist of subpersonhood, though this distinction is and what the suspicious might almost think a conspiracy to conceal embarrassing truths, far less well-known. That's uh, not really, like, that's not something that I just inherently knew uh, about Kant until recent, well, more recently than not. But it is interesting that societies who are super into Kant tend to have pretty severe racial divides. Or not, like, super into Kant is maybe not the great word, but that, like, use Kant as a framer don't always have kind results what you, i could what be you, totally you elaborate uh well you know i mean like kant was a, a huge presence in germany kind of i'm not gonna say kant led to hitler um but it's just interesting and i would say kant uh in my experience maybe i'm totally wrong uh about the actual demographics of this um but i hear uh, encounter kant reference much more in like a conservative um defense than than not okay okay but which is weird because when I, until I was reading that, I guess I hadn't inherently thought of Kant being that. But now that I reflect. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Well, awesome. Um, so that, uh, this section happens to be a, a little bit longer than the other ones here. So we're, uh, I think, going to wrap up for today, just at the middle of page 70. Uh, once again, thank you so much uh, for joining us on this. This has been really, really awesome for me. So hopefully uh, for some of you as well. Uh, just, uh, yeah, very enlightening for me. Yeah, it's just important to, um, to understand the motivations and, um, and the intellectual work done by the, you know, the... Almost the untouchables. Right, or or at the very least, like, the founding fathers of the intellectual, like, enlightenment. Yeah. To understand, uh, where we're, where we're coming from. Yeah, and it's, um, I think especially valuable... Um, for somebody like me, uh, and but it, me in the sense that, that there have was large stretches of my life where I put uh, a lot of these people on somewhat of a pedestal, uh, both intellectually and morally. Um, yep. And yep. Uh, so I understand how unbelievably easy it is to uh, not want to dive deeper into them because it is kind of like uh, losing a friend a little bit. Or uh, that's maybe okay. not the greatest way to put it, but you know, when. Uh, for me, uh, a lot of these writings built uh, some of the foundation of my moral guidance. 
Yeah. And so it was probably a little harder for me to uh, allow some of the veneer uh, to fade off of these folks, but I th- I'm very glad that I did. Um, and it has certainly helped my understanding of where we are today. Uh, so I think it was worthwhile. Yeah, uh, I, and, I totally agree. And on that wordy ass outro, um, thanks for listening and have a great day. <laughs>